Uh, as we talk about Ephesians chapter three, I want to just read for you the first verse of the chapter and remind you of something that we studied two weeks ago as we opened this chapter. You don't need to kind of follow along with it, just pay attention. It says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on your behalf of you Gentiles. And then he stops. And remember that when we were talking about this, we talked about how it's almost like he had one of those moments where he's about to say something really important, and then there's just something else that just comes in his mind. He's like, Wait, but I gotta, I gotta go here first before I can get to what I started to say, because this is too good. And so for the first half of the chapter, he's been talking about some incredible things that I just wanna remind you. It started as this prayer, and now it's this other thought. And this other thought that he talked about for the first kind of 13 verses can really be summed up in a couple of ways. One is that the mystery of Jesus Christ is that God has given us everything in Jesus Christ. That everything that we need comes to us through Christ and all the blessings of God are in Christ. And so he's telling us, this is really important. If you want to know God the Father, you're gonna have to know Christ the Son. That's, that's how it's going to happen. It's going to be through Christ that you begin to know all of these things. And then he begins to say, there's some good news for us and that that's God is building one big family and it's Jews and Gentiles alike. And for us who are Gentiles, meaning everybody who's not a Jew, that's really good news because God had only been dealing with a nation and a people. And now he's saying it's all the peoples of the world are gathered together in Christ into one family. And you remember we talked about, he said, we're building this building fitted together, these stones in chapter two, this universal church is what he's talking about. And so as we understand it today, we're part of that. We're playing a small part of it here, right here on the, these couple of acres in Nashville, Tennessee. But we recognize that we're actually part of God's universal church around the world and what he's doing. And we're just grateful to be part of that. And we recognize that because we're part of that, there's some good things that happen in that. God's showing his wisdom to the world. I think it's always interesting when we talk about what it means to be the gathered body of Christ here, but the gathered body of Christ around the world. Because if we understand it around the world, then we truly get the picture of what heaven is going to be like when we understand that it's every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And, and that's what I'm so excited about being a part of this church and what's happening right now in this city and what God is doing, because we're getting a little glimpse of that on earth right now as God is bringing the nations from all around right here to Nashville, Tennessee. And we have an opportunity to impact not just people that may have grown up in Nashville, not just people from our neighborhood, not just people that we work with, but people from all over the world, the mission is right here. Now, that doesn't diminish that we certainly do missions overseas. I just had a great meeting with our Global Focus executive team this past Wednesday, and we're excited about some new partnerships that are gonna take us back into overseas missions outside the country again this year. God willing, we think we'll have some travel restrictions lifted. We're looking forward to that because we know that's part of our mission to make that happen. And then we talked about how through Christ, God has given us boldness and confident access to his throne. I love that. Boldness and confident access to go before God the Father and just lay out our hearts. And this week, we're gonna see how all of those things informed this prayer that he finally gets to. So he finally gets around to it in verse 14. And I wanna read those couple of verses for us this morning. Ephesians 3, verse 14. 
For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love, And to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What a great prayer. That's a great prayer for us. And one of the great things about prayers that are prayed in the scripture is that they're prayers that we can pray. They're prayers that we can begin to pray not only for ourselves as a church, but for the universal church, that these things would be true. You know, our prayer lives reveal a lot about us, don't they? John Stott is famous for saying that what we pray about is what we're concerned about. And the things that we don't pray about, we are seemingly unconcerned about, or we don't feel like they rise to the attention of what God might need to be involved in in our lives. And our prayer journals, if you keep one of those things, are a great history for us of those things that we're concerned about, what God might be doing, what God is is trying to accomplish in our lives. And as we think about that, so many times we would say about ourselves, we don't really understand too much about prayer, do we? Isn't it funny that God who knows everything would ask us to pray? Why does he need to ask us to pray? Why would he invite us to pray. And see, I think it's more of that idea of invitation, isn't it? Because certainly God doesn't need to know what's on our minds. He already knows what's on our minds. But when God invites us to pray, he's inviting us into a relationship with him so that we may share with him those things which he has placed on our hearts, those things which the world has placed on our hearts, so that as we go before him, things are changed. Now, here's what I would tell you about every Christian I've ever met. Even if we think they're the, the greatest prayer warrior that has ever lived, I've never met a Christian that was satisfied with their prayer life. Why? Because we know there's more. We always know that there's more. So when we go before the Lord, we're asking him about some of these things that he's outlined in this scripture. And this is a great prayer for us. It's a great prayer for us to understand that has been prayed over us centuries ago. But it's a great prayer for us to pray for one another. It's a great prayer for us to pray for our family. It's a great prayer for us to pray for the universal church as it is going about its mission all around the world. I want you to see four things this morning from this prayer that you can pray, not only for yourself, not only for your family, not only for our church, and I hope that you will, but for the universal church. And let's just see how, as God unpacks these things, we begin to see them building, almost like building blocks, or some commentators have called them a stairway of prayer that culminates in this great thing that he asked God to do in our lives. Here's a little learning for us this morning in learning how to pray. The first thing that the apostle says comes to us in verse 16 when he says, I want you to pray, or I am praying for you rather, to be strengthened. Let's read that verse again. He says, I pray that he, being God, may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his Spirit. When he begins to pray that and he talks about praying for strength, I think about all the things that I pray for people, and most of the time, 
They involve things like this. We pray for people to be healed of every kind of disease and infirmity that they may have, and we should. The scripture tells us to do that in James. It tells us that we should go and, and pray for people that request prayers for healing, and that we should understand that the prayer offered in faith is fervent and effectual and powerful to do great things in people's lives. That's a great prayer to pray for people who are suffering. But we also understand that we can pray for people to be prosperous. Do you remember the prayer in Psalm 1 that the psalmist says, I'm praying that, that God will, will prosper me in everything that I do. And we talked about that earlier this year when we talked about it. it's not just that God would give you more money. It's literally that God would make you successful in the things your, fan, your hands find to do. That he would make you spiritually prosperous, emotionally prosperous. Uh, that, that he would certainly make your work prosperous. All of those things. But this is a prayer that we often don't pray exactly the way the apostle prays it when he says, I pray for you to be strengthened. We often pray, I pray for you to be strong as you face adversity. That's certainly involved in this. When he says, I want you to be strong in your inner being, what he's saying there is, this is something on the inside. I want you to be strengthened in the core of who you are by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now we are Baptist and that means that we know that there is God the Father God the Son, and we kind of go it like this. We say, God the Father, God the Son, God, God the Holy Spirit. You know what I mean by that? And, and what I mean by that is that oftentimes the Holy Spirit, who is fully God, just like Jesus is fully God and God the Father fully God, is the most overlooked person of the Trinity for us as Baptists. And we say, now, you know, we, we don't want to put too much emphasis on the Holy Spirit, and that's right. The Holy Spirit never draws attention to himself, but always lifts up the Son. That's absolutely right as we look in Scripture. However, as we're going to study, as we continue in our, our look at Ephesians coming up, we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and here he's praying that we'll be strengthened in the innermost core of our being, by the Holy Spirit. Now, when we think about what the Holy Spirit does for us, I think that will help be helpful to understand, as Jesus told us, there are some things that were going to be great for us when the Holy Spirit came. Can you imagine being one of Jesus' disciples and Jesus says to you, hey, this three and a half years has just been great. I'm out of here, though, and I'm going to leave, and it's actually going to be better for you. Wait, what? You know, I, nope. I don't know about that one. Why don't you just hang out for a while? Because I think this is pretty cool. Everywhere we go, you do powerful things. Demons uh, flee when you show up. You heal people. I mean, we've turned water into wine. I mean, things are pretty cool when you're around. It's, it's pretty good, Jesus. And he says, no, when I leave, it's going to be better. Because the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And you're going to receive power. You're going to receive power to be my witnesses, he says in Acts. He says, the, the, the comforter is going to come to you. The counselor is going to come to you. So when you think about the Holy Spirit's role in our lives, think about it like this. The Holy Spirit is our counselor, helps us to know things. The Holy Spirit gives us wisdom. The Holy Spirit is, is that convicting presence of the Lord. But greater than that, the Holy Spirit reminds us that God never leaves us. So when Jesus says, I'm going away and it's going to be better for you. It's that the Holy Spirit's indwelling every believer. We have the presence of God with us because he's taken up residence in our lives. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Living, dwelling, walking, working right beside us. So when we think about that, he says, I'm praying that you will have strength in the inner being. Why would we need strength in the inner being? 
This church that he's writing to, they definitely had things from the outside that were pressing in on them and making things difficult. They lived in a culture not unlike our culture. They lived in a culture where it was not a time where if you said, like, I'm a Christian, nobody gave you an award for that. Nobody clapped for that. Nobody appreciated you at work for that. Because the ruling kind of religion of the day was a goddess of fertility in this town where they lived. That they had shrines and temples to that. And, and people worshiped this, this goddess of fertility. So when we talk about that, that was kind of the religion of the day, so to speak. And if you weren't walking in that, you were an outsider, which Jesus warned us we would be and kind of told us that there would be something that would make us outsiders. We're aliens living in this world, strangers to this world. We're in the world, not of the world. And so when he talks about being strengthened in the inner man, surely the apostle Paul is looking at this little fledgling church that he knows about in Ephesus. And he says, I recognize that all around you, the forces of evil have set themselves up against you and against what you know to be right and holy and true. Don't worry about that. Be strengthened in the inner man so that you can stand in that day. Against what? Temptation? Do you need strength for temptation? That was a very holy look, smug that you all just gave me. No, pastor. I've never been tempted. Yeah, come on now. Do you need strength for temptation like I need strength for temptation? Yes. Do you need strength for peace in a world that is choppy and rough like a stormy sea? Yes. When we look at these things, we understand that the power to face temptation, the power to obey the Lord, the power to remain steadfast, all comes from the fact that Christ's power is given to us with the Holy Spirit living in us. And so he says, I want you to have this strength. But notice verse 17, because he says, I want Christ to dwell in you. Not just that you would be strengthened, but that Christ would dwell with you. I'm praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, he says. It's an interesting concept that he uses as he talks about this because when he talks about dwelling, there are two words that he could have used and he used one that was very specific. They both mean to dwell. And that's not a word that we often use. Like you don't talk about welcome to my dwelling. This is where I dwell. That, that feels funny. You know, sometimes we might say like, this is my abode where I abide. I mean, you know, welcome to my humble abode or something like that. But, but nobody really talks like that. You don't say this is where I dwell. You might say this is where I stay or this is where I live, that kind of thing. When you're talking about that, there's a difference between where you actually live and where you might dwell for the night if you take a hotel room on for the night or if you go to VRBO and you book a little trip and you're there for a week, there's a difference there. One is, is dwelling somewhere kind of temporarily and one is dwelling there permanently, right? I, I have an address and it's mine and I live there, my bills come there. When I, I go stay somewhere else, my bills don't follow me there. That's kind of one of the nice things about going staying somewhere else is the little problems that I have at my house. You know, my faucet doesn't turn off right. My light switch needs to be changed. I need to do something. I don't have to worry about that because I'm not really living there. I'm just staying there for the moment, right? It's kind of the nice thing. But the word that he uses is permanence. And I think that's a beautiful picture for us to unpack because what he's saying is I want Christ to dwell in your heart and not for him to be a visitor. Not to be a visitor. Do you know the difference? What's the difference? Well, 
it would be as simple as asking you this question. Has there been a time in your life where God so arrested your heart with conviction that you knew you were a sinner? And that without God sending Christ to die for you, you had no hope of relationship with the Lord. When we receive God's forgiveness through Christ and place our faith in him, the Bible says that he comes and dwells with us. The Holy Spirit dwells with us. It's the idea of allowing Christ to move in and take up residence with you. A lot of us might have Christ as a visitor. And what I mean by that is that, you know, when we think about it, we kind of give a nod religiously to Jesus. You know, it's, it's Christmas time. We ought, to, we ought to go to a Christmas Eve service. And we want the kids and the grandkids to see those kinds of things. And, you know, we, we ought to show up at Easter. We, we really ought to, to think about that once in a while. But the difference between being a visitor and someone dwelling is permanence. And so if we don't understand that difference this morning, that means for us that there is a disconnect in our relationship with the Lord. Because for those of us who have come to know Christ, he now dwells within us, it's permanent. He's not just kind of flying in for the week and then when we go back to our normal stuff, we think about our our normal lives and we get back to work and get back to family and get back to our hobbies and get back to our life. No, when he dwells with us, it's permanent. But there is a question for us who are believers. Graham Scrooge asked this question. Is Christ present? Or is he prominent? Or is he preeminent in your life? What would you say to that? He could dwell in the house. At my house, we have four people and one dog that dwell in the house. I thought that when I got a dog, he would be present in my house. I've come to understand that he's pretty much preeminent in my house. Everything in my life revolves around this dog. I don't want it to be that way. But even this weekend, we were going on a trip with our fifth and sixth graders at the church. We were ready to go, a little little canoe trip yesterday. And you know what happens at 10 o'clock on Friday night? What are we gonna do with the dog? Well, he's not coming with us, you know? We have to make arrangements for him. Is Jesus Christ present in the background of your life as a believer? Is Jesus Christ prominent? Or is Jesus Christ preeminent? That's an important question for you to answer this morning as a believer. Because I think what we would all say is that if he is present, we'd truthfully rather him be prominent and if he's prominent we'd really like him to be preeminent so that the first thing people see when they see us is Christ crucified living in us 
so that wherever we would go, people would know that Christ has changed us from the inside out. And he's not just present with us, although that's a blessing. He's not just prominent, but that he would be preeminent in everything that we do. And I think that we would say that all of the great people of the faith that we have met in our lives, the difference in their life was that Christ was preeminent in their lives. That's why I love being around Morgan Jackson from Faith Comes By Hearing when he comes and speaks to us about what God is doing uh, all around the world through the languages that we have helped record so that people may hear the gospel in their own language. That's why I love it when David Nelms comes and speaks to us and he'll be here at this year's Global Focus. I want my family to be around these people. I want them to understand that there is something more to knowing Christ than just having him be present in our lives, but for him to be preeminent in our lives so that our lives may be fully sacrificed and surrendered to the greatness of the call of the gospel in our lives and that we may change the world with our lives because Christ was preeminent in our lives. May he be in our lives preeminent. What a great prayer that Christ would dwell with us. So he prays that we would be strengthened, that Christ would dwell with us, and then he prays that we would know his love. Look at verse 18, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what's the length, the width, the height, and the depth of God's love. And to know this love surpasses knowledge. When he talks about knowing God's love, I think that's one of the most important things for a believer to understand. To truthfully rest in the fact that you have been loved by the living God. Do you know the difference love can make in someone's life? It's actually visible. You can actually see that it's visible. This week we had the pleasure of reuniting with some friends who we hadn't seen in a while. And it had been a year since they had completed their adoption of their son. And we knew their son before he was their adopted son because they fostered him into an adoptive relationship. And the difference is now, a year later, night and day between a child who was being fostered and a child who has been adopted. And what is it? What's the difference? It's love. It's the love of a mother and a father, brothers, sisters. Those things being in your life It literally and visibly changes someone. It gives them security. It lets them know that they belong. It gives them some steadfastness in their life to know that. And the apostles praying for this church and therefore therefore by extension praying for us that we would know his love, Christ's love, that we would understand it. St. Augustine, that great writer and teacher of the faith, said that the love of Christ never diminishes or decays. It never diminishes or decays. I love that. The idea that Christ's love for you as a believer never diminishes. It, It never starts here and then gets smaller. It never decays in its effect for you. It's not like some of those things that we have that we know are going to be destroyed. They're not gonna make it. They're decaying even as we own them. We see the threads coming off and they have to be maintained and all of those things. It never diminishes and it never decays because Christ's love for us was set once and for all on the cross and at Calvary, we really begin to see the dimensions of his love for us. 
when he talks about these directional aspects of it, some commentators have seen the directional aspects of the cross. You understand that, that he says in verse 18, we want you to be able to comprehend with all these saints the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love. When he talks about the length and the width, what's he talking about? May it be, perhaps, that he's talking about the direction of the cross that reaches out this way, horizontally encompassing all of the world. And he talks about uh, the height and the depth. As we talk about this verticality that we see, it's the love of Christ that reaches from God the Father down to the earth, and it made a difference in our lives. And as he says these things to us, he's saying, I want you to comprehend that. Because when you comprehend that, it changes who you are to know that you are loved by God. Christ. You know, when you're loved, you don't have to perform. Have you ever noticed that? When you're loved, you don't have to perform. When you're loved, you're not trying to get people's attention all the time because you are loved and secured in Christ. I don't have to worry about getting God the Father's attention. He's given it to me through Christ. Dying on the cross. I don't have to worry about being, being perfect. I don't have to worry about performing for God because I am loved perfectly by Christ, and that love never diminishes and never decays. It stays for me right where it should. There's security for us in the love of Christ in the midst of an insecure world. Aren't you grateful for the love of Christ this morning? Aren't you grateful that the love of Christ reaches you right where you are, even today, though your relationship with God the Father, you may say, I came in with some sin this morning. I really needed to deal with that. I needed to, to confess that. Or maybe as Pastor Tim was talking, I, I, man, I came in with some hurts. I came in with some mess. I came in with addictions. And we understand that the love of Christ meets us where we are. And it challenges us to be changed by a relationship with God the Father. And once we are changed, it gives us security in an insecure world where everything seems like it's up in the air. We know that there is a constant for us. It is Christ. It reaches as far as we could wide and reaches as high as we might go to the heavens and as deep as we might go to the deepest hell that there is so that God would draw us out into relationship with himself and in doing so, give us security in knowing him. Now there's an interesting little tag in here that he gives us. And I think it's important that we don't miss it in verse 18 where he says, I want you to be able to comprehend these things. I want you to know these things. I want you to be established in love and to know Christ's love that surpasses all of this knowledge. And he talks about the idea that these things come to us. And as we comprehend these things in verse 18, it comes to us through the saints. That's funny. It feels to me like when I think about God's love, I think about God the Father extending his love to us and the way that he would do that, of course, is through Christ the Son and that that's a one-sided transaction, right? I didn't have anything to do with the cross. I didn't have anything to do with Calvary. It's not by any good works that I could do that would make Christ reach out and, and choose to save me. We've already studied that. It's the fact that God saw us in the state that we were in and he chose to allow Christ to die for us even while we were ungodly and he demonstrates his love for us on the cross and that feels very very one-sided in its transaction. But what we begin to see as he's writing this is that nobody's in relationship with God in a vacuum. It doesn't work that way. He says, with all the saints. 
There's a dimension to Christ's love that you cannot comprehend on your own. It comes in the church. And what does that mean? Now, if you would indulge me for just a moment, I understand that I'm kind of riding for the brand, so to speak, by telling you that church is important. You would think it would be an odd thing if I told you that church wasn't important this morning, uh, being that I want you to be in church, and it's how I, I express my calling and my vocational living is here at church. So let's step aside from the pulpit for just a second. Let's just have a talk. Can we do that for a second? Do you realize that everything that we've been studying about through this is that all of God's blessings are coming in and through the church now. We're in the church age. It started as we talked about in Ephesians 1 and 2 that God was doing all these things and God was getting a people for himself. And do you remember we studied all the way back through the Old Testament and we started talking about God was doing something in Adam's life and then God was doing something in Moses' life and Abraham's life that he was calling a people unto himself. And now God has extended that to all the Gentiles, which of course we are included, and he says, I'm building this building together and I'm doing something through the church. And as we read the New Testament and we read these letters, these epistles, that's what a letter is. We talk about Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all epistles. We talk about the letter to the Thessalonians, all those things. Most all of them are written to churches. Some are written to individuals. We talk about the book of Philemon written to an individual that Paul had a relationship with. We talk about Titus and Timothy. Those are written to pastors, the pastoral epistles. But the rest are written to churches. I cannot begin to express for you how important the church is. Take Judson Baptist Church out of your mind for a minute and let's talk about the church. When God talks to you about being in a relationship with people and he says that we're going to understand and comprehend the love of Christ, it comes through understanding the love of Christ in the church. No lone ranger Christians. No solo fighters out there. Doesn't work. It comes through the church. When we think about what God's trying to do through the church, we see that God has given the church this great commission, something that we cannot do on our own. I cannot fulfill the great commission on my own. Impossible to do it. You can't either. It comes through us being in relationship together, on mission together, and working through what God has called us to do. We also begin to understand that through these relationships, we begin to see these little manifestations of God's love for us in Christ. One of the things that I love about the church is hearing about how the church meets its own needs. Now, what does that mean? Well, I mean, th there are times where someone will tell me, you know, I was going through this thing, and did you know that my Sunday school class did this? One of my favorite stories is one of the guys who was in one of our men's Bible studies years ago asking the men's Bible study, said, hey, I need you to pray for me because I don't know what to do about this car that I have. We blew the motor in my car and I don't know if I should just sell it or if I should replace the motor. I just don't really know what to do. I don't have the money to really do this kind of thing. And he said, pastor, would you believe that the guys in my class, as they prayed for me afterwards, one of the guys came up to me and said, I'm going to put a new motor in your car. That takes away all the question about it. I'm just going to pay for it. That's the church. You've been the church as we've gone through COVID-19, as we've expressed love for one another. You have been faithful to give to a benevolence fund over and over and over again that has helped people who were struggling not only inside the walls of the church, but outside the walls of the church. We have seen the church 
uh, display its love as we have sent people on mission and we have continued to care for our mission partners all the way through uh, this year. One of my favorite notes that I got was from one of our mission partners who's waiting right now to, uh, to go overseas and start their, their language work. They have been learning a language and been learning how to do Bible translation and they are ready to go and COVID has kind of held them back. And I love this letter that said, we wondered if Judson was going to keep supporting us through this. And we were blessed to know that you did. That's the church. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. Too often, we believe that church is optional. We believe that it is nice if we can get there. We believe that it's one of those things that might have some benefit to us if we ever needed some benevolence you know, kind of funding. But we don't see that the day-to-day living our lives in the church and with the saints brings this great and full dimension to who God is in our lives. But if you ever understand it, not only will you love God, but you will love his church. We're gonna study as we continue in Ephesians that Christ died for the church. Isn't that interesting? His bride the scripture calls it. So as you think about that this week, can I challenge you with something? If you go to a church or you happen to kind of fall into this church once in a while and you are a spectator at this church, and here's what I mean by spectator, uh, you come in, you might worship with us, and then you very discreetly and quietly kind of slip out the door and make it to the parking lot and try to beat the Methodist to lunch or brunch or wherever you're going, all those kind of things, can I challenge you not to do that? Can I challenge you today to walk out to the next steps desk and say, I don't really understand what a life group is, but pastor said I should find one and they'll help you because we want you to be in relationship here. We want you to know people. That's why tonight, when you may or may not be interested in coming and doing the slip and slide that we're going to have, um, I, I understand, you know, to each and to their own, uh, or, or the inflatables or anything like that. I want to challenge you to come anyway and have an icy with us. Because just those times of sitting around and fellowshipping and learning from one another and loving one another make all the difference in the world. All right, strengthened to dwell, to know the love of Christ. And he finishes it up by saying, I want you to be full. I want you to be full. Let's read verse 19. To know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Have you ever eaten a meal and got up from the table still hungry. I feel that way every time I eat fish. I don't know how you get full on fish. You know, we eat fish from time to time. It's not that I love fish. I actually don't mind it, but I don't like it. You know, kind of one of those, it's kind of like broccoli, you know? Broccoli's fine, but I never, like, I'll put it this way. I'm never gonna go out to eat and pay for broccoli. You know what I mean? (laughs) I'm never going to go out to eat and they say the catch of the day is and me go, mmm, sounds good. Not going to happen. You know, I'll eat it. Don't mind it. 
but I've never gotten up from dinner full from fish. I think that's why the little mom, when she sent the boy with his two fish, also sent some loaves with it, you know, <laughs> because she knew. And the fish weren't going to cut it. That's reading into the scripture, of course. I have no idea. But this part of the prayer that we would be filled is pretty interesting, isn't it? Because when we talk about this idea of being filled, he actually says, I want you to be filled with God's fullness. It's a funny word, isn't it? I want you to be filled with God's fullness. Well, what is it? It's the fullness of his character, his grace, his love. And if that happens in our lives, then we really would be filled. Uh, and a lot of times we're wondering why we don't seem fulfilled. You know, why, why is it that I go to work and I come back from it and I, I just, I don't feel fulfilled? Why is it that, that maybe at home I don't feel as fulfilled as I wish I did? Why is it that I, I can't kind of find that, that place of relaxation and fulfillment on vacation or whatever it is? And the reason being is because those things to me are like eating fish. They satisfy a little bit, but they don't fill you up. It can't do it. Because when he says, I want you to be filled with the fullness of God, what he's praying is really an aspirational prayer. When we went through our church visioning process here, one of the things that we talked about was we weren't going to make aspirational values, you know, that, that are impossible to measure. So, you know, we weren't going to say we endeavor to be excellent. The only way you can measure that is to ask yourself if you thought you were good enough. And I've never thought I was bad. You know what I mean? It's that kind of thing. Or maybe we, what we could do is say, well, we compare ourselves to be excellent by looking at other people and we kind of rag on them and basically say we're better than that. This is an aspirational value, though. I'm going to cough. I'm sorry. Aspirational value when are we ever going to be filled up with enough of the Lord? There's no measure to it, is it? Because just about the time you think that you have gotten all of God you can get, you turn the corner and there's more. And just about the time you think you've exhausted all the love of Christ, you turn the corner and there's more. And so when he says, I want you to be filled with the fullness of who God is so that you can have all of this, what he's saying is that I want you to be wonderfully filled, to be purposefully filled, and I want you to be satisfied so that you're not chasing all these other things that will never fill you up. There's nothing wrong with vacation. You should work. You should love your family. All those kinds of, that, that, that's all fine. But they're not filling. You don't find fulfillment in those things. We find fulfillment in knowing God because when we know God, then he sets the purpose for our lives. It makes it all make sense. We begin to understand that we're not just, you know, some little dot on a map right now representing a person who's alive today. We're so much more than that. We're part of God's story. We're part of his plan. And as he fills us with his fullness, it leaves us totally satisfied. And you get what you want, not what you don't. How do we get that? How could we know God's fullness? You know, I can't think of any better way for you to know God's fullness than for you to start tomorrow by opening up his word and just opening your eyes to see what he might say to you. If you've never done that before, if you've not been in the habit of, of reading God's word, can I encourage you to, to do maybe two readings tomorrow? Would you start with the gospel of John and just read chapter one? Write down any questions, any notes you have about it. Pray over it. 
Maybe read Proverbs 1. You'll be done. Just see what God has to say. Just see what he might say to you through his word. See what he might reveal to you about himself because it's all here. And a lot of times we leave a little empty wondering why we're not fulfilled, why we don't, don't feel kind of satisfied. And it's because we haven't really sat down at the table to really dine with the Lord. We haven't really sat down to understand who he is in us and what he gives us, that character, that grace, that strength, that purpose. That's a great prayer for us. You want to pray for me tomorrow? Pray for your pastor? Four things. You don't need to know what all is going on in my life. You don't have to know every prayer request that I have. You just pray that I'll be strengthened. That Christ would dwell in my life. That I would really know his love tomorrow. And that I would live satisfied in the fullness of who God is. When you're done with me, pray for somebody else, the same thing. And before you say amen, pray that for yourself. What a great prayer for power in our lives. I want to ask you this morning if you would bow your heads. I asked a question earlier about Christ being a visitor or a resident in your life, have you ever been saved? Truly, have you ever been saved? I don't mean, did you ever go to church growing up? Did you make a decision? I'm talking about, are you saved? Is he living in you? You say, Pastor, I, I don't know. Don't let today go by and not know. I pray that at the end of this service, you'd come find me. I'll be sitting right here down front waiting for you. And I'd love for you and I to have a conversation about how you can know Christ. If you're a believer this morning, is he present? Prominent? Or preeminent in your life? Are you resting in his love? Are you secure in his love? Is Christ dwelling with you this morning? Would you just take a moment and consider that? Our prayer would be, obviously, that he'd be preeminent in our lives. Heavenly Father, our hearts are turned towards you today and we rest in the love of Christ. We rest in your love, Father, and we pray as a church that you would give us strength, that you would dwell with us, Lord, that you would let us know your love today and that we would be fulfilled in our relationship with you. Father, we pray for the one who's not saved today. That as you knock on the door of his or her heart, that they would open that door and receive Christ as Savior. Father, thank you for our church. Thank you for this group of believers. Our prayer, Father, is that you would use us in a mighty way in the days to come. In Jesus' name, 
Amen.